Welcome to the podcast series, Nursing Research Basics. This podcast series is being brought to you by nursingeducationexpert.com. In the first part of this particular podcast, we talked about data quality and did an intro into the nature of data, the different forms of data, and data measurement. In today's podcast, we're going to talk now more about the details of reliability and validity and what the research consumer needs to look for when you're critiquing a study for these particular points. So let's continue. Reliability and validity are really the most important concepts in the evidence-based decision-making process. In order for us to trust the results of any research study, we have to have trust in how the study was conducted and how reliable and valid and or trustworthy the data were that were collected by the researcher. Reliability, again, is the consistency or the repeatability of test results. The typical descriptors of a reliable test are that the test produces consistent results, that it's repeatable. In other words, when you repeat the test with the same person, you get similar results, okay? They're not too, they're either exactly the same or not too far off. That the test is objective and that it's dependable. So those are common descriptors for reliable tests. Validity is does the test or instrument again, so realize I might use test or instrument, but I'm talking about the same thing. How truthful are the results? Does the test correctly measure what it says it's measuring? Validity is dependent on the reliability of the test. In order for a test to be valid, it has to be reliable and it has to be relevant. We'll talk a little bit in detail about this in a second. Reliability is how stable the test is, how accurate, how repeatable, right? Relevance is the degree of the relationship between the test and what the goal of the researcher is. So does the test, again, is it relevant to the concept or to the variable that you're interested in measuring? Does the test reflect what it was reported to be testing? The instrument that is most reliable and most relevant will be the most valid instrument. But do realize that a test can be reliable but not be valid. And a test could also be relevant, but not be reliable. However, a valid test always has some aspects of reliability and relevance. For example, a scale that weighs two pounds less than the actual person's actual weight is a reliable tool but it's not valid. So in other words, if it always measures two pounds less than actual, it's reliable, it's repeatable, it's going to measure two pounds, two pounds less every time. However, it would not be a valid measurement of the person's weight because it's two pounds less than what they really weigh. Hopefully that makes sense. Validity cannot exist without reliability and without relevance. So let's start off talking about validity. Validity asks, again, 
Does the instrument measure what it's supposed to measure? And the important question to ask here is valid for what? So what is the variable that you're trying to measure? So let's have some examples. What would you use to measure cloth yardage? If you use a yardstick to measure cloth, that would be a valid way to measure cloth, right? If you use a tape measure to measure cloth, that would be a valid way to measure cloth. But if you put the cloth on a scale, that would not be a valid way, that would not truthfully measure yard, the yardage of the cloth. Let's use another example. What would you use to measure body temperature? Well, most people would say a thermometer, and that would be a valid way to measure temperature. If you used a yardstick, obviously, I know that sounds silly, but again, it's just to make the point that a yardstick or a tape measure would not be a valid way to measure body temperature. Okay, let's take an abstract concept and talk about validity. So let's talk about hope. So if a researcher is interested in the phenomenon of hope, then you need a tool that will be able to accurately measure hope. The hope tool, and there actually is a hope tool, and right now I'm blanking on the researcher's name, but there is a hope tool that actually has very, very excellent reliability and validity. If you're interested, you could probably just Google hope tool or hope research instrument, and it would come up, and I apologize to the researcher because it's just go, gone out of my mind. But, so it has very high reliability and validity. And I used to give actually the research report on the reliability and validity that the researchers did on this particular tool to my students so they could see what an excellent example of testing a tool for reliability and validity looked like, what an excellent research report looked like, because they talked about all the different types of validity testing that they did. The tool would be valid if the tool actually measured hope but didn't measure anything else, didn't measure hopelessness, let's say. That's another example of an abstract concept. The tool has to be able to measure hope, not something else, in order for those data, for the results to be valid. And some of these other types of validity here that we'll get ready to talk about, you'll see these are different ways that you could measure your tool for this phenomenon against established tools, okay? So validity is, does the instrument measure what it's supposed to measure? And there are some different types of validity. And we're gonna talk about content validity, construct validity, and criterion-related validity. Let's start with content validity. There are two types of content validity, face validity and what we call expert panel validity. So face validity is the least rigorous of all the different types of validity. It's a very subjective form of validity. And in and of itself, it is not enough for a researcher to say the t this tool had face validity. That is just not gonna be enough for you to feel good about that instrument. 
face validity is if you, so you come up with this tool, let's say this questionnaire that you're going to give these patients because you want to know about hope. Uh, maybe these are, let's say transplant patients and you're looking at how hopeful are they that they're going to get a transplant, let's just say. Okay, so we'll use that example. Well, face validity would be de developing this tool and then handing it to some other maybe researchers that you know that have done a lot of research in hope and handing them the instrument and saying, what do you think of this instrument? And it would be a very more a cursory type of glance uh, where they would maybe review the instrument and say, yes, this looks like the tool is valid. I did a face validity for my dis dissertation. I did, uh, I looked at research utilization, or now we would call it evidence-based practice, among critical care nurses. And when I was developing my tool, I handed it to some fellow critical care nurses, uh, colleagues of mine, and I said, this is a tool that I'm going to be using for my dissertation study. And this is what I'm, this is my goal. Tell me what you think of it. So I gave it to critical care nurses to look at and to assess whether or not the tool had face validity. Now, I also did a more extensive content validity, expert content validity with that particular tool. But face validity was, was like a first step. So face validity is just when somebody looks at a tool and says, yes, this looks like it measures research utilization. Yes, this looks like it measures hope, etc. Okay? Just remember, it is not enough by itself. And if that's the only thing that's being reported, uh, you want to have, uh, be very wary of those results. Now, other content validity then that the next step is where you have experts judge the items in your test and they judge the entire in instrument and you're trying to look at how well does this instrument reflect the content domain that you're interested in studying. So again, I'll, I'll just use my examples, but after I developed my tool for research utilization and evidence-based practice, I chose five experts in, at the time, research utilization. I also, one of my experts was a tool developer, was an expert in tool development, and I sent them this huge packet. I had a very, very good research teacher who uh, had kind of a template for how to do this, and I remember being able to look at what she did and then using a similar form. So basically, for every question and content domain, I had a little description of the content that I was trying to get at. I would have the questions down in that content domain, and I basically asked these experts to rate each of these questions as to whether or not they met the criteria that I was trying to get at. The great thing about expert panel reviews and for content validity in this case is that your experts will give you suggestions for how to revise or reframe the questions. They might have some good examples for you. They may have some additional questions. So this is a time then once you get your content validity 
tools back from your experts, from your content validity panel, then you revise the researcher, revises the instruments based on the comments. So questions are thrown out or added, words are changed, there's some wordsmithing done, maybe the, the type of responses are changed in order to more accurately reflect the type of content and the question that you're trying to get. So it's very helpful for the researcher to have an expert panel to so that you can revise the instrument before you send it out for your major study. So that's content validity. Criterion-related validity is the relationship of the tool to some already known external criterion or other valid tool. So you want to know to what degree are the subject's performance on the measurement tool and the subject's actual behavior related. And when there are two types of criterion-related related validity, predictive validity, where we're looking at a future event. So for example, the use of GRE scores to predict success in graduate school is a type of predictive validity. We look at your scores and we say, based on these scores, this is what we think is going to happen in graduate school, right? Now, actually, many, many universities have gone away from using GREs as admission criteria, but that's a, a different story. So predictive validity looks at how well can we predict a future event. And concurrent validity is where you give subjects two measures at the same of the same concept that are given at the same time. And the idea is that you take the tool that you're trying to test against a, an already validated tool, and then you give both of these tests or questionnaires, whatever, to the subjects at the same time. They fill them both out. And then if they're both measuring the same concept, then you should get similar results on the tools. Hopefully that makes sense. So just for an example, you would then do a correlation, use a correlation coefficient to see how well these measures predict each other, okay? And the higher the correlation coefficient, remember correlation coefficient only goes to 1.0, but the closer your correlation coefficient is to 1, the greater the agreement between those two measures and the greater the evidence for concurrent validity or uh, predictive validity. For example, for concurrent validity, let's say you give, you want to test IQ. Well, if you, you can give the Stanford Binet IQ tests and you can give the Wexler intel intelligence tests to somebody at the same time and then correlate the scores. And obviously, these are both actually val validated tests, but since they're both measuring intelligence, you should get similar scores on both of these tests. That would be concurrent validity. Here's an example of predictive uh, validity. So I used to study just from long ago. The dates don't matter here. I, I'm just trying to give credit to the researcher. But Hickey, in 92, 1992, assessed the predictive validity of the cardiac diet self-efficacy and the cardiac exercise self-efficacy scales. 
So basically, they took scores on both of these self-efficacy, the diet and the exercise, cardiac diet and cardiac exercise self-efficacy tests on entry into a cardiac rehab program. And then they correlated those entry exams with subsequent, subsequent scores related to diet and exercise goal attainment. And they found significant positive correlations between the initial diet and exercise self-efficacy levels of 101 cardiac rehab program participants and their subsequent diet. Correlation coefficient was 0.62, and this was a statistically significant difference. So 0.62 is fairly high up there. It means it was a really, it was a good correlation between what the, the people said at, on admission to what they wound up doing and their exercise. And the, and the R value, the correlation coefficient for the exercise scale and their subsequent behaviors was 0.53. So not as great a correlation, but still a, a good correlation between exercise, self-efficacy, and exercise behaviors. Okay, or the goal attainment. So that's just an example. Here's an example of concurrent validity from the literature. Abraham assessed concurrent validity of the geriatric depression scale by cor correlating the scales on the geriatric depression scale with the Zung self-rating depression scale. And that correlation coefficient was 0.84, so very high correlation between, at the time, this new depression scale for geriatric patients, elderly. The geriatric depression scale and the Zung self-rating depression scale were correlated at 0.84. And Abraham also then correlated the geriatric depression scale against the Hamilton rating scale for depression. Again, these are both these were both validated and reliable instruments. They took a new instrument and gave these all to the subjects at the same time and then looked at looked for concurrent validity. So therefore, since the, the R value, by the way, for the Hamilton was 0.83, uh, the correlation coefficient between the Hamilton scale and the geriatric depression scale was 0.83. So very high correlations, that gives you a greater confidence that this geriatric depression scale really does measure depression, and in this case, in geriatric patients. Now construct validity is to what degree does an instrument measure a specific trait? And constructs are abs abstract concepts that are often very difficult to measure because they are abstracts. In order to try to measure these constructs, it's very complicated, it's time consuming, and usually requires multiple measurements. So there's a couple of things that you can do for this type of construct validities. One is called contrasted groups or known groups technique. And this is where you administer the tool that you're interested in establishing construct validity for to several groups that are known to differ on a certain construct. And of course, if they're going to differ on the construct, you're going to expect statistically significant differences. And in that case, that would be evidence of construct validity. 
Let's say the construct is preoperative anxiety. So this construct, it's a specific trait. And how, how would we expect, or wouldn't you expect then if we used the contrasted groups technique, let's say we do this anxiety tool for pre-op anxiety to patients who are undergoing minor surgery versus patients who are undergoing major surgery. Wouldn't it make sense to you that you would expect higher anxiety in the patients undergoing major surgery than a minor procedure? So you give the tool to both groups. These are contrasted groups. You expect very different results from a minor surgery patient to a major surgery patient. And when you get those, then you can say you have construct validity. Two other types of construct validity are convergent validity and divergent validity. To check for convergent validity, you're checking the validity, again, using other tools measuring the same construct. You give all these tools at the same time to the same subjects. For example, the geriatric depression scale with the Zung self-rating depression scale and the Hamilton rating scale for, dep for depression. So those would be convergent validity. They all are measuring depression. If you get a positive correlation between all those instruments, that supports convergent validity. Now, divergent validity, here you're searching for instruments that measure a construct opposite the one that you're interested in. So let's take the HOPE scale. If we want to make sure that the HOPE scale doesn't measure hopelessness, then one good way to figure that out is to check it for divergent validity. So you give the HOPE scale and the hopelessness scale to the same participants at the same time. And what are you going to expect? You do not expect a positive correlation between the HOPE scale and the hopelessness scale. You, are, you want and you expect a negative correlation. So when you get a negative correlation between the, those instruments, then that should make sense because that's evidence that they're measuring two different constructs. And that's evidence for divergent validity. Now, there's also a multi-trait, multi-method approach to validity testing. And this is where you administer a variety of different methods and you are expecting then positive correlations between all these different methods. So let's take the construct again of anxiety. If we really want to test this particular tool for anxiety, you might, or to see whether or not a patient really has anxiety, you could administer the state trait anxiety inventory, Spielberger's tool, which is, again, highly validated and reliable. At the same time, you could record a blood pressure reading. You could ask the subject whether or not they're having any anxious feelings. And then you could also observe the subject's behavior. So do you see how those four different methods, those are all four different types of methods. There's an interview, there's observation, there's an actual equipment recording of blood pressure, and there is a, a questionnaire on anxiety. All you would expect if the patient's having high anxiety, that they, you would see that on the 
state trade anxiety inventory, their blood pressure would be high, they'd be expressing to you that they're very anxious, and then you might see them being very fidgety or or scared looking. All those things would come together to say, yes, this patient has anxiety. Okay. Now, hypothesis testing is another way that we can look at validity. And when we're doing hypothesis testing, we're, in this case, testing that the theory or the concept underlying the tool that you're using to see if it really is adequate to explain the findings that the tool is producing. So hypothesis testing really helps in the interpretation of the tool and the findings of the tool. In this case, the researcher develops the hypotheses based on the theory or the concept related to the performance on the tool, gathers the data, and then interprets the stats. Statistically significant findings provide support for the hypotheses and therefore the theory or the conceptual basis of the instrument. Here's for an example. Resnick and Jensen wanted to measure the ability of, of people to exercise in, the, in spite of barriers. So they had a self-efficacy scale for exercise, or the C scale, and this was 13 items that measured the ability of people to continue to exercise in the face of barriers. They also used the short-form health survey, the SF-12, and this is a very commonly used, the, the the health survey is very commonly used. The short form has, they have different n numbers of questions. I think there's an SF-18, uh, there's SF-36. This was a very short one. This was the SF-12, valid and reliable measure that reflects health dimensions influencing exercise. So there's two scores actually from the short form health survey. The Hypothesis was that individuals with better health statuses are more likely to have stronger efficacy as measured by the C scale, SEE, self-efficacy for exercise scale, and the SF for short form 12 physical health score. The SF 12 subscale score significantly predicted the self-efficacy for exercise scale score. They used an, an ANOVA, uh, was st uh, statistically significant. And so, for example, high scores on one, on one of these tools predicted high scores on the other. So that hypothesis was supported. Another hypothesis was that individuals with better mental health statuses are more likely to have stronger self-efficacy expectations, again, as measured by then the self-efficacy for exercise scale and the SF-12 mental health score. And in this case, the SF-12 subscale score significantly predicted the C score. And that again, so that hypothesis was also supported. And so the interpretation is that people with better physical and mental health have stronger efficacy ex expectations about exercise. So that's an example of hypothesis testing. And another type of validity is called factor analysis. And it's again, this is a little more extensive form of analysis. But what factor analysis asks is to what extent does a set of items on an instrument measure the same construct? 
And so you're looking to see whether the scale items cluster around one or more specific dimensions or factors in this case of a construct. And the idea is that when you put all these data in and you run your data through the factor analysis program, that the items that are similar, that are all measuring the same factor, will load on, on that, that particular factor for a one-dimensional construct or multiple factors, depending on if the instrument is measuring a multi-dimensional construct, okay? So the researchers then analyze the results and determine if the instrument measures the construct as it is theorized. So this is another way to test the validity of your tool. We're now going to finish up this podcast talking about reliability and the different types of reliability that we look at when we're assessing data instruments from a research study. So just a reminder that reliability is the ability to obtain consistent, predictable results when we reuse the same test. Therefore, the same results will occur if the behavior is measured again using the same scale. For example, IQ test results on time one should be similar to the results at time two. And those should be similar to the results at time three, etc. Because in this case, IQ does not change day to day, right? The more reliable a data tool, the more confidence that the results will not fluctuate greatly from one administration time to the next. The imperfections in reliability measurements are due to errors in measurement. So again, to, due to either random and or systematic error. The characteristics of a reliable scale is that the scale is state that there's stability, internal consistency, and equivalence. And we're going to now talk about some of the different tests that we use to measure these different characteristics. So before we talk about that, I just want to remind you again about reliability coefficients. Reliability coefficients are the statistics that we use to express the, de the degree of consistency between scores obtained on multiple testings. It goes back to the idea of measurement error, that is the relationship of the true score, the error variance, and the true variance. Reliability coefficients are numeric indexes of reliability, and they range from 0 to 1. A zero correlation means that there's no relationship between the items at all. Correlation coefficient of 1.0 is a perfect relationship. It means as the scores on one test go up, the scores on the other test, on the second test, will go up in the same exact way if the correlation is 1.0. So you're basically looking for a correlation coefficient, or an R. It's documented as a little italic R when you're seeing it written in the literature, that a correlation coefficient closest, closest to one means an increase in that relationship and the more reliable the tool. So for example, if your correlation coefficient is 0.89, that has, that's a very small error variance. 
And that just basically means there's very little measurement error in that correlation coefficient. Usually when we look at new tests, we want to see if they're brand new, newly developed tests, we want to see at least a correlation coefficient of greater than 0 0.70. And do realize that these are kind of arbitrary numbers. It is a convention. It's pretty much what people go by but just keep that in mind that it's not an absolute. If you have a correlation coefficient of 0.69, let's say, on a new test, you wouldn't trash the test. Uh, it's close to the acceptable level, and obviously that test or that instrument might need some more development. So there are different forms of the reliability testing. We're going to look at test-retest reliability, parallel and alternate forms, item total correlations, split half reliability, the Cooter-Richardson Cooter -Richardson 20 or KR20 test, Cronbox Alpha, and iterator reliability in this section. So let's start off with the concept of stability. Stability asks, are the same results obtained on repeated admissions of the tool? And the caveat to this particular characteristic of reliability is that the concept has to be stable first. So you have to have a stable concept in order for repeat testings to show similar results. The most commonly used tests for stability for reliability are test-retest stability and parallel or alternate forms. Let's talk about test-retest stability. In this case, we use the same exact instrument that's given to the same subjects under similar conditions on two or more occasions. And then you compare the two scores using a Pearson's correlation. So if you think of a pretest, post-test type of research design, let's say we are testing a new way to teach nursing research, and you use an instrument you, you give the subjects a pretest of knowledge of nursing research. So you want to find out what's their knowledge base before they even start the class, right? You have them take the pretest, you teach the class or you do the intervention, and then you use the same exact test to do a post-test on these subjects. So the test hasn't changed. There's just been a time period in between the pretest and the post-test. So after you do your intervention, you want to see if the knowledge base has increased. Hopefully that makes some sense. Now the time interval between the test and the retest are really important because if the time interval is too short, then your subjects tend to remember the answers they put down to the test. So if it was, if the pretest or test one was administered in the morning and test two in the evening, they might qu clearly remember the answers they put down on the morning test. So an interval, you want the researcher to tell you what the time interval was between the test and the retest. That's really important, otherwise that's considered missing data. So if it's too short, that's not a good thing. The time interval can also be way too long. So in the 
the fact that a person might do better on a post-test if the time interval between the testing is very long might just be because they've matured or they've learned during the interval between the tests. Parallel or alternate forms are two forms of, the, of a test that's measuring the same concepts, but there are different questions. So there will be the same total number of questions. The, the test questions all measure the same concepts, but the tests themselves are different. This is commonly used when you maybe are giving a test A and a test B. So test A is measuring the concepts of reliability and there'll be questions and application questions, let's say, on test A that are different from the questions on the test form B, but test form B may uh, is also measuring reliability. And so you give your subjects these two different alternate or parallel tests and again, you're looking at the fact that there should be similar results. If you understand the concept that the test is testing for, then you should do well whether it's form A or form B. Now, parallel or alternate forms is very difficult to construct. It just, it takes a lot to write one test and to write two tests on the same concept. It just takes a lot of time. So they're more difficult to construct. And there are also some disadvantages to administering the test as far as making sure you're giving the same directions, etc. Internal consistency is a very common measure of reliability. And what internal consistency does is we're measuring the homogeneity or how well all the items on a, a certain scale reflect the same concept. And internal consistency is looking at how does item one relate to item two? How does that relate to item three? How, does, how do those items all relate to each other? And these items should correlate with each other if they are measuring the same concept. And do realize that there are unidimensional scales, so scales that just measure one dimension, and then you would surely expect all the items on that scale to correlate very highly with each other if they're all measuring the same concept. But then there are a lot of scales that are multidimensional. So you might be looking at just a couple of different content domains. In that case, obviously, you're just expecting the items within a content domain to correlate highly with each other, but not necessarily to correlate with the items in another content domain. So part, some of the testing that you do is item to total correlations, for example. And the researcher will document whether or not items were removed for the test because they were, were redundant. If items are too highly correlated with each other, then it probably means you have too many items. So if you can get away with 10 items instead of 20, all measuring one concept, then it's better to do the 10 item test uh, as far as participant burden and some other factors to think about, rather than having 20 items that are basically all asking the same question. The Cooter-Richardson 20, KR20 coefficient, this is uh, an internal consistency test used for tests that have dichotomous items. Yes, no, true, false, only one, you know, one answer or the other. Split half reliability 
takes a scale and divides it into two halves and then compares the results on each of those halves. And a formula called the Spearman-Brown formula for the correlation coefficient is used for split half reliability. The most commonly used internal consistency measure that you will probably see is the Cronbach's alpha or what's also called coefficient alpha. This particular statistical test is measuring the internal consistency of the test of the scale and you want to see very high results. So typically the researcher will say the Cronbach's alpha for this test and they'll use it'll be Cronbach's alpha so you'll see that Greek alpha a equals for example 0.95. So again the closer to one the better but you don't want it too close to one because then you have redundant items. So a Cronbach's alpha in the high 80s, 90s is usually considered a very strong internally consistent measure. And then equivalence asks the question, how consistent is the agreement among observers using the same tool? Or how consistent is the agreement between alternate forms of the tool? So the higher percent of agreement is, is equivalent to a high correlation. And again, you can use parallel or alternate forms to, to measure equivalence, but the most commonly used measure that you, you're going to see is inter-rater reliability, or IRR. And in this case, you want to see the researcher tell you that their data collectors, this is usually when you have more than one data collector, and you want the researcher to tell you that their data collectors were trained so they were all trained in the same manner because what you're hoping for, especially when there are multiple data collectors, is that they're all collecting the data in the same way because obviously if they don't collect data in the same way, then your results will not be accurate. So in that case, we're looking for either a kappa coefficient to be reported or a correlation. Now the usability of a tool are really talking about the practical aspects of using a tool. So how easy is it to administer, administer? How easy is the test or the tool to score? Is the interpretation fairly easy? How much money is it going to cost? How much time and energy is it going to take on the part of the researcher and the research team? So usability is an important characteristic to look at when you are reading about research studies. All right, so that was talking about reliability and validity of quantitative studies. I want to just briefly talk about validity and reliability in qualitative research and realize although the terms reliability and validity are primarily used in quantitative, they also reflect how accurate the data are when we're using qualitative, so verbal or descriptive data instead of numerical data. Again, validity then in qualitative research is the extent to which research findings represent reality. So when you're looking at descriptive or qualitative data, remember these are usually gathered by through an interview technique, either a one-to-one -one or a focus group technique where participants are asked questions and the data are either audio recorded or video recorded 
uh, hand notes are taken, field notes are taken to ref to record the exact words of the participants. So when you see the these themes come out in qualitative research, when we're talking about validity, we want to know how trustworthy is the data. Does the information make sense when compared to the other information that was gathered? And so when you're looking at qualitative data, you've got to read the whole study and put everything in a gestalt, everything in, you've got to take all the data together to see if everything makes sense. Reliability is, is the info gathered from the research informants accurate? In this case, in qualitative research, we usually call these folks either key informants or participants. And also reliability, we do need to look at, at, is the data collector reliable? So in these interviews or observations, was there any carelessness notice or bias on the part of the researcher or the data collector? So we've talked in the past about qualitative research that you the researcher usually is tries to bracket their feelings and their attitudes so that they don't put any of their bias that their bias doesn't affect how they're interpreting the participants words in qualitative research we talk about trustworthiness again how accurate is the data from the participants words one of the ways we check that is through member checking or peer checking which is where as the researcher is gathering the data and coming up with themes or categories, many times they'll go back to some of the original members in the focus group or in the one-on-one -on -one interviews and they will bring forward these categories and themes and they'll say to that participant or that informant, this is what I'm hearing, does this, what, how does this sound to you? Is this what you were saying? Is this, does this resonate with what your experiences were? Auditability is another way that we look at reliability and validity in qualitative data. Auditability is the researcher keeping an audit trail. In other words, all the decisions that they make, the types of documents that they look at, everything is written down so another researcher can come by and look to see the path that that researcher took to come to these specific conclusions and interpretations and the idea obviously is that the second researcher or the could come to the same conclusions using this same data trail Confirmability also comes back to some of this member checking, but is looking at whether or not they, whether the themes have truly emerged from the data. And then transferability is similar to generalizability in, in quantitative research, where you're, you want to be able to use the information from the qualitative study in other patient populations. So if you're talking about the experience of heart transplant, for example, Remember that your sample size is going to be much smaller in a qualitative sample, but you still want to be able to take the gleanings and the insights from that qualitative study and use it in your patient population if that's appropriate. And can I use these and, and think about these when I'm talking to my patients about whatever the phenomenon of interest is? So as a research consumer, 
your ability to interpret reliability and validity is vital. You have to evaluate each instrument that the researcher has used. You want to know the level of reliability and validity for each of the instruments. The researchers should tell you these. They should tell you how reliability and validity were established if these were new tools. If these are validated tools, a lot of times it'll just be a sentence that reliability and validity were established in whatever year by these researchers and they'll give you the citation. And because of page limitations, many times a researcher will not regurgitate the reliability and validity information that's already documented in another research report. So in that case, just a simple statement might suffice. But if these are new tools, the researcher needs to document how reliability and validity were established so that you feel good that that tool that they used provided accurate data. The researcher looks at the nature of the tool and how it will be used, and they might say, for example, this tool or this scale was administered two times, one at baseline, the intervention was performed, and then this tool was repeated. That type of information is what you need. And then, of course, any previous methodological studies, like I said, would be documented. They would have the citations there to send you back to the literature if you want more detail on the reliability and validity. Again, the convention is reliability coefficients for tools uh, over 0 0.70 is a desirable is desirable. Over 0.8 is people get very excited about, so it's acceptable. So over 0.7 is what you're looking at. And again, remember validity is limited by the reliability of the of the scale or the tool. And then the limitations obviously should be noted as far as the as far as how reliability and validity were determined were determined. And then the actual findings from the study are always interpreted in light of how good the data tool was. So data quality is really important. This is going to help us decide whether or not a research study's results are acceptable and whether or not we want to try to use those results in our own clinical practice.